You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. So let's dive into Galatians after we pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you. Lord, I thank you for all these wonderful people. Lord, I thank you that um, you love them and you care about them um, in a depth that I will never even be able to comprehend. And that's crazy because I love them so much. God, and we know what this is like with our kids as we love our kids so deeply and we can't fathom what it's like, how much you love them, Lord. And so I just, I just pray that you would be with them. I pray for those that are hurting today. God, I pray that you would hold them, show yourself real and close to them as a God of all comfort. God, I pray and rejoice with those that are rejoicing this morning. Um, I pray and thank you for the growth, God, that we have seen in so many people's lives and the things that you are doing. You are a good, good God, and we praise you. Lord, and so we thank you for um, this Christmas season. We thank you for sending your son. And we pray, Lord, as Christians, that we would live in light of the reality of the gospel. And so help us do that this morning. In your name, amen. All right. Um, We've got a long passage to work through together, um, but let's read it, starting at Galatians 4, verse 8. It says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And um, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I again in anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be um, more than those who are one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time... 
Um, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This whole passage, all those words we just read, can be summed up in one word. Freedom. Paul wants the Galatian Christians to live in freedom. And God wants you Christians to live in freedom. And here's the really good news for us. This is not something that we disagree with God about, right? There's lots that we fight God in, right? But this is not one of those things, right? Because we all struggle, right? Don't we? Life is really, really, really hard, isn't it? And these last three months, they've been the hardest three months of my life. And for some of you, the last week was the hardest week of your life. And for some of you, the last month was the hardest month of your life. And for some of you, the last few years have been the hardest few years of your life. We all struggle because we live in a world that's full of sin. And so life is really, really challenging. And sometimes it can just feel like a good old swift kick to the teeth, right? And so what do we crave, right? We crave freedom, right? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we have that freedom because there's only one way. I want to start by looking at um, a little chunk 8 through 11, 4, 8 through 11. You can look at that in your Bible with me. And in that little chunk, you can basically sum it up like this. It's going to say, don't move from heirs to the slaves of demons, right? Simple, a little bit blunt, right? Uh, but that's what Paul is going to argue. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked, what did we look at? We looked at the fact that as Christians, we are heirs, right? We are sons and daughters of the king of the universe, and that makes us heirs in Christ Jesus. And so he's going to tie that in, right? He's saying, don't go from heirs, everything that we just talked about, all the riches and the glory that you have because of your dad and what he did for you, right? And instead, become slaves of demons, right? And so let's look at this passage and unpack it quickly. So if you read in verse 8, it says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, right? So I promise you we're going to talk about freedom. We're going to get there. But Paul starts, as the Bible often does, with the bad news, right? And the bad news is what? That before you knew God, before you were a Christian, you were slaves to those that by nature were not gods, right? And so we were in bondage to spiritual beings that were not gods, right? What are those beings? Demons, Satan. And then look at the pink there in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Right? So what's he saying in the pink? He's saying, why would you give up knowing God? Right? Why would you give up being an heir to the king of the universe to turn back to the elementary principles of the world and live as a slave instead of live in freedom? Right? And so here's the big question, and it's the one that you're probably asking because you're all good theologians. You're reading this and you say, what does it mean when it says the elementary principles of the world? What's that talking about? 
We need to figure that out. So let's read verse 10 and then we'll put it all together. So verse 10 in the green says this, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Right? So verse 10 is talking about the law, right? the Old Testament law. Right? Do you remember all the festivals and the different sacrifices and things that God would have them do? Right? They would do that on different days and months and in different seasons and years. Right? So we're talking about the law. And what's interesting here with our question in the middle is it's kind of sandwiched in between two different things, right? Verse 10 kind of makes it sound like the slavery that we're in is to this law, right? But verse 8 kind of sounds like the slavery that we're in is to these demonic forces. And so which is it, right? And we want to understand this because we want to make sure as Christians we don't turn back to the world after we are made sons and daughters of the king. And so I think the best way to honor God's word and to understand this is to see it as both, right? We know that the Galatian Christians were in danger of adding the law to the gospel, right? That's something we've been talking about a lot in this series. And maybe you're saying to me, Mark, you've said that so many times, but I missed the intro. Can you just remind me what we're talking about? Or maybe you jumped in part of the way through our series. Yeah, let's talk about when we say they're adding the law to the gospel, what does that mean? So here's what it is. The gospel, right? That word gospel, it means good news. And so the gospel is the good news that we can be with God himself, right? That's the good news that we can be with God. And we can be with God both now, right? As the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And also for all of eternity. Why? Right? Because Jesus died on the cross, right? Taking the punishment for our sin, right? Taking our place. And the punishment for sin is what? Death, right? So he took that punishment that we deserved. And then he came back to life and he demonstrated that he has the power to forgive sin. And he demonstrated he has the power to offer eternal life, right? So that's what Jesus did for us. But the Judaizers, right? AKA the bad guys in Galatians, the people that are confused, that are reading the Bible wrong, they were telling these Christians that to be saved, you need to call Jesus your king. We're like, yes, amen, right? We agree with that part. And then you also have to follow these rules laid out in the Old Testament, right? And this is what's confusing, right? And this is why they were reading the Bible wrong. At one time, the way that you showed faith in obedience to God was what? By following the Old Testament law, by doing those days and months and years, the sacrifices and the festivals, right? But the law's main purpose was to point us to Jesus. And so when Jesus came, right, we didn't need the law um, anymore for salvation because we already had who it was pointing us towards, right? So that's what they got confused. So then what they ended up doing is they said, you need Jesus, but you need to keep doing this stuff, right? And then so what you're left with, according to the Judaizers, right, the people that were trying to confuse the Galatian Christians, is they're left with Jesus plus do a bunch of good stuff to gain God's favor and salvation. But that's wrong, isn't it? Right? And so you might be saying, I thought as Christians we should obey God and do good stuff. And you're like, yes, we should. That's right. We should. But the order was wrong, and that's critical. So let me show you what I mean. There's a little math equation for you, right? This is what the Judaizers were teaching. And this is what other religions right now are teaching, right? 
gospel, what God did, what Jesus did, the good news of what Jesus did for us, plus works equals saved, right? And so what does this teach? This teaches us that our works are the root of our salvation, right? That essentially we need to save ourselves because the gospel, the work of Jesus, isn't enough because you need to add something else to it in order for it to equal saved, right? That's what we're saying in this part. But that's false. That's wrong, isn't it? Because that's not how this works. This instead is the equation that we're looking at as Christians. The gospel equals saved plus works. That's what Paul's teaching. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what I'm trying to show you is this, that what Jesus did on the cross for your sin, the thing that you don't think anyone else could forgive you for, Jesus died, he shed his blood to forgive you so that you could be with him. What Jesus did is enough. You can't add to God's work by doing something on your own. You can't add to God's work by doing good stuff, right? But rather, God's work is enough, right? All on its own. And so we're saved by him. And then because we've been saved, we love God, right? So we look at what went on, what we just looked at being in demonic slavery, and we say, God saved me out of that Right, so now I love him so much and I want to obey him. And so because you love him so much and you want to obey him, you want to follow him, this causes us then to do that good stuff to show everyone how great God is, right? And so that's what we're doing. Everything in our life, we're like, man, how do I show people how amazing God is? Because look at what he just did for me and I've been finding out about who he is, right? So that's what we're doing. And then as we live that out and we're trying to show people God's awesome, as we mature, then we start to grow and we realize this light bulb goes on and we go, this stuff's also for my good. The stuff that God's calling me to is also for my good. God's not putting these things in place because he's a killjoy. He's putting these things in place because he loves me deeper than I will ever know. And he wants what's best for me. And he wants... Um, he knows what's best for me because he created me, right? So instead of works being the root of our salvation, instead they are the fruit of our salvation. That's how that equation works. So hopefully that is helpful. So that's the difference. That's the tension of what we're seeing here in Galatians. So let's get back to our text. And now let's learn about how we can see the slavery that Paul's talking about to the elementary principles of the world. He's describing it both in terms of to demons and to the lie that you need to do good things to earn God's salvation, to earn God's favor and salvation. So let's look at it and consider some things that we know from God's word. The first is this. What's the goal of demons? I think they've got a few. But what's one of the goals of demons? One of the primary goals of demons of the demonic realm is to drag you away from reliance on God. Right? Think about it. Because who's your salvation rooted in? God. Who is the power, your power as a Christian rooted in? God. When do you grow as a Christian? When God works. Not when you work, when God works. Where is ultimate joy found in life? It's found in God, isn't it? Right? 
and in two main areas, right? In obedience to him and doing what he's called us to do. And it's also in enjoying you, in enjoying what he's given you, the way he created you to enjoy it. Okay, did you catch that? Enjoying what he's given you, but the way he created you to enjoy it, right? So let's take, for example, steak, right? So steak is a good gift from God. Sorry, vegans, it is. Steak is a good gift from God, right? And so when we enjoy steak, right, and we, we realize that God would do this for us and give us this good gift and give us flavor, not just give us useless food that doesn't bring us any sort of joy, right, as we enjoy that, that's a good thing, right? We get to experience joy in God. Where does that get twisted? Gluttony, right? When you eat a 50-ounce steak, right, and you're rolling over on the floor, right? That's, you get, you get it twisted, right? From a good thing that God created to now outside of the way that God called you to um, enjoy it, and then it becomes sin, right? And that's one of the other traps of the devil. We see similar things um, with sex and some of those sort of things too, right? Inside of marriage, really good thing, right? Outside of marriage, not a good thing, right? We're called to enjoy what he has given us to enjoy, but the way that he created us to enjoy it. And so what do demons do, right? They try to take you away from relying on God. They want you to do things in your own strength, right? Because whatever you do, it's useless if it's done in your own strength and for your own glory, right? It's got to be done in God's strength and for his glory. And so that's what they're trying to get these Galatian Christians to do through the Judaizers. It's a trap that was set, and the trap is the law. They're saying, hey, remember this way that you used to follow God and show that you loved God? You gotta still do that. And God's saying, no, you don't, right? So what are you gonna choose, what you think or what God has said? That's the question. Now let's talking about living in the freedom, right? So we talked about the trap, right? We talked about the slavery. Let's look at living in freedom. So look, turn your Bible to 21 um, through 5.1. We're gonna look at the end chunk of this passage. 21 through 5.1. And we want to talk about how to live in the freedom of the gospel, right? So we know the bad news, right? Before Christians, we were slaves, right, to sin. We were slaves to demons, to the demonic realm. And then if we add um, to the gospel our own self-reliance, or if we add our own good works as a mechanism for being worthy, right, of trying to gain God's favor, either in being saved or, Christians, in how we live out our lives, then we're not living in the freedom of the gospel, but rather we get end up back in the slavery that we used to be in, a slavery to demons trying to do things on our own, outside of reliance on God. But we know what we talked about at the start, right? We desire to live in freedom. It's something that we know our heart craves. If your heart doesn't crave freedom, you're lying to yourself, right? Our hearts crave freedom. So let's ask this first question. We need to define what freedom is. And so let's look at what freedom is. You know, I I go to Piper a lot for definitions because they're just so well thought out and practical. And he says this, there are four kinds of freedom or better for stages of freedom on the way to full freedom that all of us long for. The freedom of opportunity to do what we can, the freedom of ability to do what we desire, the freedom of desire to do what will bring us an ending joy. 
right? And so just think about these things, right? The argument for the essence of freedom is that it consists of four things, opportunity, ability, desire, and that it should end in unending joy. And then he, he follows, as I was studying, he follows with a wonderful analogy that just so happens to relate to parachutes. Um, and so I don't know if Piper stole this from the wise um, Reverend Benjamin Emery, who is an expert on giving good parachute analogies. Uh, but either way, I wanted to share this one with you. So basically, it's my words um, to some degree. It's all his thoughts. The smart things are what he um, has said. But let's look at this. So take skydiving, right? So suppose you're on the way to the airport for your first time ever skydiving, your first real jump, but your car hits a pothole on the 401 and you veer off and you ran into a concrete wall and you wreck your car. Um, what's happened? You're no longer free to jump, right? You're, never, you're no longer free to go skydiving because you left it too long, you're late, there's no chance of getting there anyway else. You can't call Uber, it's not gonna work. So whether you have the ability or not isn't the question, right? Because the opportunity has passed you by because you're waiting for a tow truck and your plane has taken off, right? So you've lost the opportunity, you lack the freedom of opportunity. Okay, so that's step one. Or suppose you make it to the airport but you have no ability at all, right? You've never studied skydiving and you don't know the first thing about how a parachute works, right? This is gonna be a problem if you're skydiving. So the opportunity is there, but you don't have the freedom of ability. You're in bondage to your own lack of know-how, right? This is a problem. Okay, step three. Suppose you make it to the airport, right? Step one, good. You've made it through um, the school and the training. You have all the abilities that you need. You know how to do things. You actually paid attention to the course, and now you take off for your first jump. But as soon as you look down, all of your desire to go skydiving vanishes completely. And you're, some of you are like, yeah, that'd be me right about there, right? All your desire has vanished as you start to look down out over the plane. So you have the opportunity, right? You could go, right? You have the ability, you took all the training, but the, the freedom of desire, like that's gone. Like that is out the window back down on the tarmac where your feet want to be, right? And so the interesting thing about freedom is the desire, right? The freedom of desire is that you might actually, even though you're terrified, you might actually still be able to jump, right? But it won't actually be a free act, Okay? And I know this is really in the morning for deep thinking, but think with this um, with me. Right? It's not actually a free act, and this is why. As you're standing out there, absolutely terrified, and you no longer want to jump out of that plane, but you've got other forces going on than just your fear, don't you? What else do you have? Humiliation. Right? That instructor that you just talked smack about and you said how easy it was going to be, right? you might be humiliated and you're like, man, I can't let that instructor down. Or you got buddies in the back of the plane chirping you, and there's no way that you're going to let them um, chirp you for the rest of your life because of this moment. Or even worse, your girlfriend is in the back of the plane behind you, and you're like, there is no way that I can chicken out now, no matter how terrified I am. And so you jump, right? But the emotional experience is not what we call freedom. Why? Right? Because you're acting under very uncomfortable external constraints, right? You are compelled to do it out of a horrible feeling inside of you, not because you love to do it, right? And so it's not actually freedom. Freedom 
of desire is when you're doing what you love to do, not what you're compelled to do. So that's step three. And then here's step four. There's one last requirement for full freedom. What was it? He said unending joy. So you got to the airport, everything's good. You got the know-how. You look down at those tiny clusters of houses and you're like, this is awesome, I can't wait. Right? I'm going. And some of you people are like, yeah, that's me, right? And so you have the freedom, you have the ability, you have the desire, and so you jump. But here's one problem. As you free fall, unbeknownst to you, your parachute malfunctions and will not open. Here's another deep question for you at 9.49 in the morning. Are you free? In three senses, yes. Right? In the three senses that we just looked at, yes, you are free. But there's a critical fourth sense, isn't there? Right? What you are doing so happily and so freely is going to kill you. Right? And that's a problem. Right? That is not a good thing. So whether you know it or not, and when you try to pull the parachute, you know, right? Now all of a sudden you're in bondage to destruction because in about two and a half seconds, you're going to be splat on the pavement, right? So it would be a mockery, right, for us to go and say, oh yeah, that's so great. You're living in freedom. Good job, man, right? Like that's not what you would do. If that was actually happening to somebody, that would be a horrible, horrible thing to have happen to someone, right? You're like, oh, that was such an exhilarating free fall of freedom, right? That's not how that works, right? Because it led to destruction. In order to be fully free, it's not just enough to have opportunity, ability, and desire to act. The acts that you desire and perform need to lead to life. They need to lead to life. And as you consider that spiritually, right, you can see the connection to life that's found only in God. Right, true joy, true freedom, eternal life found both now and in eternity, and it's only found in God. So as we keep those four points in mind, um, as we talk about freedom. And so if you look at verses 21 through 5-1, Paul's going to essentially give us this picture of Abraham's life, and he's going to compare, um, he had more than two sons, but he's going to compare these two sons, and he's going to tell us how they relate to freedom. Okay, so he's got two sons, Ishmael, Isaac, that he's going to talk about. So Ishmael was born from Abraham's slave girl, Hagar. And so Paul reminds us, he says, Ishmael was born from the flesh. And what does that mean? Right? Ishmael was born from self-reliance. Right? Remember, that's what we were talking about. Is, do you remember what happened? Right? God promised Abraham and Sarah a son, right? An heir, didn't he? To fulfill that promise in the Abrahamic covenant that we looked at, right? That he was going to bless the whole world through Abraham. But Abraham was going to need a son for that. And he didn't yet have that. And so Abraham and Sarah, they keep checking their baby-making apps. And they keep realizing that the chances are continuing to dwindle of them having a baby as the years go on. And so what do they do as the baby apps are screaming at them and saying, hello, it's time. Um, they took matters into their own hands and Abraham sinned, right? And he had a son with his slave woman, Hagar. Ishmael was born out of the flesh. He was born out of self-reliance about them trying to take God's plan into their own hands, right? One of the age-old traps of the devil, right? And what does he say that leads to? That led to slavery, right back to where you were. And then we have Isaac on the other hand. So on the other hand, 
Isaac, how was Isaac born? Isaac was born through God's work alone, wasn't he, right? Isaac was born when Sarah was 90 years old, right? Long after childbirth would have been impossible. Like seriously, ladies, considering how awful it would be to have a baby at 90 years old. I'm a man and I can understand to some degree how painful that would be. So I can't imagine how you are feeling in that moment as you consider pushing out a baby at 90, right? And so Isaac is born in a way that leaves absolutely no doubt that it was God and God alone that gave them that baby, right? And whose line did Jesus come from? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who brought life to the whole world, Jesus, right? And so it was completely through God's work that we were given life, that we were given freedom. And that's the picture that he's trying to show us. Paul's telling, he's begging us, he's saying, don't stake your salvation, don't stake your life on self-reliance, right? That's slavery, right? Stake it on the all-sufficient work of God. This is the calling to live in the freedom of the gospel. And so now let's answer the final question, the pressing question, the one that you've been waiting for. How? How do I find this freedom? And how do I live in this freedom that my heart desperately desires? It's this. Freedom is born. The house starts with this. It's born through Christ being formed in you. If you look back to verse 19, this is the key. The key to this freedom that Paul's been begging them to live in, instead of reverting to slavery that we looked at at the start of the passage, is in verse 19, until Christ is formed in you. And how's Christ formed in you? Right? It's through God's incredible work as he opens our eyes to show us how amazing he is and he changes our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts, real beating hearts that love him. Right? And we accept the gift of what Jesus did for us and we accept it by faith and we know it's because of his grace and God's spirit comes and lives inside of us demonstrating us as a child of God and not a slave to sin in the demonic realm. That's how you find the start of freedom. That's where freedom's born. But where do we find that freedom, right? You give God your life. You give God everything. That's where that freedom is found. And for some of you in this room, there is something that is holding you back. And I want to ask you two things because I care about you. Number one, I want you to think about it. What is that thing? What's that thing that's holding you back? And number two, most importantly, is it worth it? Is the thing that's holding you back, the thing that you're like, I I keep saying no to God because of this thing, is it worth it? In light of the freedom that your joy and joy that your soul is craving, you're, you're craving God. Is it worth it holding out? I want us to see one other thing in this text. Um, if you look right before the part that's highlighted there, um, we see a part that's very graphic and also interesting, right? What does Paul write? He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Is that not insane? Like that's crazy, crazy language of how he's saying, he says, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Um, A word of advice for all of our young ladies who have not yet had kids. Don't let your husband get your push present until after the birth, 
right? Because husbands who've had kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? As you watch your life, your wife go through the anguish of childbirth, and anguish is a really strong word, and yet all the ladies in this room who've had kids, they're thinking, a man wrote this, and anguish is not a strong enough word, right? We need an even stronger one. Um, but as you watch your wife go through that absolute anguish, um, you're willing to buy her anything that her beautiful heart desires on the other end of it, isn't it? Right? Men, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? I remember that feeling very vividly twice. Right? And so ladies, you just need to capitalize on that opportunity and don't let them get that push present until after. Um, but you didn't come to church for advice on push presents, um, so I will digress. And so what's this point? What's his point? Paul's describing himself through the language of childbirth right, in a land where there's no such thing as an epidural, and he says, I'm in anguish, like a woman giving birth until Christ is formed in you. Why? Because Paul has lived in the absolute freedom of living for God, right? And he knows that there's nothing beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's nothing greater to experience because for a lot of his life, he lived on the other end apart from God, didn't he? What did he experience? He experienced self-reliance. He experienced building a reputation that was sterling and everyone loved him. He experienced playing perfect, moral, religious person, right? And going to church, but it never really changed anything. He experienced being the smartest person in the room. He experienced money and everything that you could want. And what did he find? He found that the freedom that he found in Christ infinitely surpassed it all. And so he desperately wants the same thing for the Galatians, and God desperately wants the same thing for you. And so what holds us back, right? Because for a lot of us, we know the truth in our heads that I'm talking about today, but it's gotten stuck somewhere in the path of actually living it out. So I want you to pray and ask God specifically, what is that thing for you? But just to jog your memory, I'm going to give you two stumbling blocks that I've both seen in Christians and experienced in my life that keeps us as Christians from experiencing the freedom of God that he desperately wants us to live in. The first relates to the freedom of desire. Remember John's analogy with the plane, right? Standing on the edge, having opportunity, ability, but not the desire, right? And that you could even reluctantly jump out, but um, you're, you're worried about what other people think, so it's not actually freedom. Right? This is how many Christians are living their life right now. And maybe this is you. Trying to be obedient to God's word. Trying to follow God. But you really don't love following God. Right? So you maybe, maybe it's because you feel the pressure of hell. Or your Christian family. Or you feel like it's a good thing to do to go to church. And following God is a good thing. It makes you feel good. And you want to feel like a good person. But to be honest, you just really don't love following God. And so where does that leave you, right? It leaves you in a really hard, awkward place, doesn't it? It's a really, really hard spot to be because you end up just going through these motions of obedience, but really your heart loves something else and so you just end up feeling like a fraud, right? And that's not a fun place to be. And so how do you live in the freedom of desire um, in this way? Here's a few things that you can do. Number one, you pray. You ask that God would help you to love following him, right? And that's not one of those prayers that you like pray once and check it off your list and say it's there forever. 
This is the kind of prayer that you beg God with multiple times a day, over and over and over again, until he changes your heart. That's how you pray, right? Number two, you get to know him through his word. You read his word. My heart has always, without fail, grown to love God more as I learned about him more through his word, right? Sometimes that takes time. It's not in an instant, but it's truth. Number three, you thank him for what he saved you from. Right? Remember where we looked at at the start. Right? Remember that um, feeling, right? what it was like to be enslaved and that God grabbed you out of that right? because he loved you and thank him for that. And then number four, continue to do the things he's asking you to do because right? you're not always going to feel like it. Right? But I want you to consider the why. Why is he calling you to do these things? If you consider the why to the things that you know God is asking you to do, what you're going to find underneath it all is someone who loves you deeply. And that will cause your affection for God um, to grow. So that's number one. And number two, um, the second relates to freedom found in unending joy. Right? If you remember the last part of the analogy, you jump from the plane and you feel free, but your parachute is malfunctioning, so you're plummeting to a horrible, terrifying death. Um, this... Um, is not real freedom, right? And so this exposes something that I have seen in a lot of younger Christians, both in terms of age and just general maturity, right? As younger Christians, we can be naive, right? And I don't want to trivialize this. This is just something that a lot of us have gone through, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We can be naive, and so we end up envying our friends and the people around us who don't have to live by God's rules, right? Their life to us looks more exciting and more fun, right? As they experience the freedom, what they, we think looks like freedom, of them following their heart or doing whatever their sinful heart guides them to, right? As they throw themselves into sex or popularity or partying or lives of luxury or fame, right? And that's a real thing, right? Like young people today, in today's age can legit be rich and famous at a very young age, right? Just check out some of the YouTubers. Check out some of the people on TikTok, right? Like that's a real pull for our young people. I'm not trying to trivialize that. that. That is a real thing. But when these people do this and when we envy these people, we need to remember what? That they are actually free falling to destruction. And so should we envy them? No, Right? We should be like Paul, and we should be in anguish for them. Right? We should have everything in us want them to experience actual joy through Christ being formed in them instead of riding the roller coaster of temporary happiness and then loneliness and pain and then doing it all again. And see, as Christians, to obey God and to set their hearts to follow him, that's real freedom. Right? That's where real freedom for Christians is found. It's where we taste this freedom day after day when we obey God, right? And so if you're anything like me, and um, I'm guessing you are, you're probably tasting this freedom in some areas, and you probably need God's power in other areas, right? I think that's where a lot of us are. Um, but we need to remember what it's like as Christians, we know what it looks like to live in God's freedom according to his 
design, and I want to give you four. And some of you are probably have some of them, and you're like, yes, I'm there. Praise the Lord. And for some of you, you're probably like, oh, I don't know if I'm there yet. I need God. Here's four. As Christians, we experience freedom emotionally. We're not fearful or anxious or worried. Why? Because we know how the story ends, and we know who holds the world. And that gives us tremendous freedom as Christians. Do we live in that? As Christians, we experience absolute freedom relationally, right? We aren't worried what others think about us because we know what God thinks of us. That's freedom, right? Straight from God's word. Number three, as Christians, we experience freedom physically, right? We don't fear death as Christians when we live in the freedom that God is making available to us because we know we're going to an even greater place when we die. We know that death, physical death, is not the end. And as Christians, we experience freedom spiritually, right? Because we're not trying to fill the void inside of our hearts, right, with what we hope will make us happy. Because we already have someone, right, the Holy Spirit, inside our heart who fills us with joy when we cling to him. Right? And we could go on and on and on with these things, right? We talk about money, sex, substances, so many more things that we have freedom in as Christians. And I want to encourage you, do this. Think about it, right? Think about the areas where God has given you freedom through obedience and faith and trust in him and be encouraged to see God working in you and then also thank him for it, right? Those are good things. We close with this, Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Right? That's the essence of our passage. Right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again. He's saying, don't go back. Why in the world would you go back when you've tasted the freedom that's found in Christ? This is what he's desiring for your life. Don't live a life of self-reliance. Live in the freedom of a life completely and wholly surrendered instead to God. And some of you have never tasted this freedom. Would today be that day that you taste that freedom, right? Some of you haven't tasted this freedom in a really long time. Would today be that day? And for some of you, for all of us, there's more freedom to live in through obedience and trust in our Savior and King who died um, for us because he loves us so that we could be free. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would be with us, Lord, that we would live in the freedom found in following you in the gospel. And as we come to communion, Lord, and remember what you've done for us, would we come in thankfulness as Christians for the areas where you are giving us freedom? Would we praise you for them? Would you show us the areas where we are returning to bondage when it makes no sense? God, and for the person who has never tasted this freedom of giving their life to you, I pray that today, that this would be the day that they would taste the freedom that's found in you and you alone. As Christians, we can attest, there is no greater freedom than following Jesus. And so we thank you and we love you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.